Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Movement is Life. Movement is Life is an organization that advocates for protecting people from the detrimental impact of arthritis by encouraging movement, by encouraging and increasing awareness of health disparities impacting vulnerable populations, particularly women, people of color, and people living in rural areas. Movement is Life also advocates for greater diversity in the healthcare professions. Health equity, then, is our overall area of interest. I am Michelle Leak. I'm an administrator at Mayo Clinic in Florida and a member of the Movement is Life Executive Steering Committee. I am your host for today's podcast. Two facts really highlight a critical connection between heart disease and arthritis and joint pain. First, in 2017, the Center for Disease Control reported that heart disease is the number one cause of death in the U.S., followed by cancer. And in 2020, it looks like the COVID-19 virus is on track to be the third leading cause of death. Second important fact, in 2019, Mayo Clinic reported that treatment for knee, hip, and back pain is the number one reason that individuals seek healthcare. We know that joint pain limits mobility and that it results in less physical activity, obesity, increased pressure on our knee joints, and then even more pain, all of which is likely to result in heart disease type two diabetes and depression. We also know that movement or more physical activity is the key to breaking this vicious cycle of joint pain and achieving not only joint health, but also optimal heart health and mental health. So with this in mind, we're going to discuss heart health, health disparities, and the impact of the COVID-19 virus on our most vulnerable populations with renowned cardiologist from Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Dr. Sharon Hayes, as well as being a busy professor of medicine and a specialist in preventive cardiology, heart disease, and women's health. Dr. Hayes is also the director of the Mayo Clinic Office of Diversity and Inclusion. So welcome, Dr. Hayes. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. It's so good to have you. Um, We're just so appreciative that you could join us to discuss these important topics. I'm always interested in stories that inform our career choices and our life's work. Could I ask you to start our conversation today by sharing with us your story in terms of how you decided to become a doctor specializing in cardiology and also what awakened you to this calling to devote a great deal of your energy to health equity? Well, I will say the the part about being a doctor and cardiologist um, is a little less exciting, so I'll start there. Um, <laughs> I was good in math and science. And back in the day, if you were good in math and science, they said, well, you should study medicine. And it seemed to be sort of that course. Um, And I didn't waver and in fact went to um, medical school at Northwestern, which was a six-year integrated program where I got a bachelor's degree and an MD. Um, So basically I was accepted into medical school as a high school senior. 
I think becoming a cardiologist, um, uh, I loved everything I did um, in terms of medicine, some things more than others. And I had a hard time because um, cardiology really was the thing that got me most excited. Back when I was in training for internal medicine, um, it was when we were making great strides in both prevention, because that was statins were relatively new and treatment of hyperlipidemia and risk factors was shown to really be highly relevant to today's talk, really be kind of the future. And then the interventions of thrombolysis and stopping heart attacks in its tracks was also all of those early TIMI trials. So I think it was the excitement of both being able to prevent and do. What were the the, the red flags? Um, at the time, only 6% of um, cardiologists were women uh, back um, in the 80s. And there was a certain amount of Gee, would do I? Why? Why is that? Maybe that's a red flag, and I think the the other was a lot of my view was of these cardiologists running in for STEMI call at all hours of the night and wondering if that would be a lifestyle um, that I would want. But I have never looked back. Um, being a cardiologist is great, and for all you women out there um, who are thinking about medicine, uh, join us. I think at the same time, uh, though, I think the diversity and inclusion, the equity and the advocacy for which I have spent a, a lot of my career, um, uh, I, I reflected that probably the first time I really got out there was in middle school. So back then it was actually junior high school and the junior high school to, for context First of all, Title IX had just come in. So Title IX, that girls actually had sports, had only been around for you know, a few years. And there weren't many girls sports, but they were coming. Ninth grade was part of junior high, and it was separate from the senior high. The boys in ninth grade got bused so, to the high school so they could do varsity sports. The girls were told you have to wait till 10th grade. Mm-hmm. So they weren't providing access to girls. So this, we, yeah. my friends and I, we said that's as a Title IX uh, violation. So we made an appointment and got on the school board agenda, holding our little posters, and we went forward. And um, and they, of course, it was a Title IX violation, so they actually had to change it. And um, that sat with me because mm-hmm. wow. And I remember talking to my girlfriends who were all, we we're all swimmers and we wanted to be able to swim for the high school team mm-hmm. and, and then got to do it as wow, these little voices actually can make a difference. And, and so that's transferred into the little voices of women with heart disease. I recognized were um, so this is back in the late eighties, early nineties. And we were recognizing that there were sex and gender differences and we needed to move forward and maybe learn better why women were not doing as well with heart disease, whether it was with a heart attack or heart failure or were doing differently. And um, so I've worked a lot with uh, women with heart disease and advocacy, which leads us to today, because all of this has to do with health inequities or inequities in some such. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, um, Dr. Hayes. It's so important for us to use our voice and we can make a difference no matter what our age is, right? So thank you for sharing that. As you have mentioned, one of the things that's on everybody's mind now is the COVID-19 pandemic and especially how it is disproportionately impacting people of color, women and the elderly, and hence really shining a very bright light on health disparities like we have not seen to date. 
we know that Black and Latino people are three times as likely as white people to become affected with the virus, infected with the virus, and twice as likely to die. We also know that eight out of 10 COVID deaths reported in the U.S. have been among people ages 65 and older. So Dr. Hayes, share with us what you're seeing and understanding about this pandemic and how it impacts so many of us so differently. Yeah, it's so complicated. And I think it's really um, sometimes has been easy to make shortcuts and say, because of this, this happens or because of this. And, and mm -hmm. we have been finding as this rapid gaining of knowledge um, that sometimes we were kind of wrong. So one of the things that was um, that came out very early is, uh, you know, that cardiologists were interested in is that it did appear that there was a higher risk of poor outcomes, like ending up on a ventilator or death in people who had hypertension, underlying heart disease, diabetes, and particularly obesity. And it would have been very easy to say, well, that's the reason that, say, African-Americans were having a disproportionate burden um, and more likely to die. And I think that um, where we really need to peel back the onion a bit on that is that there are other reasons other than just the risk factors um, mm -hmm. that African-Americans have. It is because of many other factors, social determinants of health is what we often call them. But one could also say that it is the result of 400 years of structural racism that to a certain extent has contributed to this because these same risk factors, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, are prevalent because of redlining, other economic things, but as well as where people are working. So when we talk about what are some of the disparities, um, say for women, so one of the, those sex differences is although women are more likely to contract the virus, they tend to be less likely to die. We don't understand that. That's probably something that is a great and rich area of research mm -hmm. um, because if there is some gender or sex factor that we could somehow learn about and apply to men, but women and women healthcare workers are more likely to get the virus on average in part because they are more exposed. Mm -hmm. So they are more likely to be frontline workers. They are more likely to be healthcare workers. Um, healthcare workers are 70% women. So if you just look at pure numbers, um, they are more likely. Similarly, in terms of the poor outcomes uh, for African-Americans, it may be because they are exposed at greater, um, a greater virus load. They're, they're essential workers. They may not have an opportunity to telework. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to meet, perhaps need to take public transportation where um, they, have to, they don't have social distancing. So you start with the disparities that we already know about that movement in life is so attuned to. And then you take a, um, a pandemic, a virus that one, we don't understand very well, but we know um, affects people who live closely together. And if we think about the economic opportunities and the, the likelihood that the housing density may be greater, you start seeing that this combines with the data we already know that African-Americans um, have higher death rates for virtually every condition um, that we look at. I think the other thing that if we really want to un better understand the coronavirus is we talked about where people live. So it may be that the food availability, that healthy food um, isn't available. Yes. And then psychosocial stressors and the physical stressors such as 
unemployment and violence that we've seen um, in the past few months or environmental like pollution or lead like Flint, Michigan. So yeah. all of these things that were kind of the baseline, if you were having to get bottled water because your own, you know, your city water isn't safe, that's another exposure that you might have. Dr. Hayes, you're right on um, point on all cases there. And I wonder if you could speak just a little bit about, we talk about the, the social distancing, the hand hygiene, the wearing the mask, but some of those things, although they're critically important, there are risks, for example, of a black man of color wearing a mask and walking down the street. So I think that there's some things of that nature that we have to understand. Yeah, so if you think about particularly this intersection of the deaths um, by law enforcement of a number of African-Americans just going about their lives that uh, really bring home that do you really want to be um, somebody who is already at risk for being pulled over or being questioned by police to add to that risk by wearing a mask, even if that is the safest thing for you. We still live in an era, you know, an era or an environment of relatively segregated health care. Mm-hmm. So if you think about um, the, the, the populations at risk, they are on average more likely to be underinsured or uninsured and may have less access to primary care, may not even have a primary care physician or practice and particularly specialty care. There was some early data that came out of the Northeast that said that blacks and whites with identical um, symptoms of COVID-19, the whites were more likely to be referred for testing. Mm -hmm. So that was probably an unconscious bias sort of, so we haven't even talked about. If we think about some of these external COVID-19 locations, um, many of them are drive up. Think about it. So we've already said that you may not have a private car and then you put a drive up COVID-19 testing in the suburbs in a shopping mall. Um, That may make it completely unaccessible to the folks who who need it. And then just like we saw in some of the inner city um, hospitals in New York, some of the sickest patients were having to go to some of the most Mm under-resourced hospitals. Absolutely. We did learn um, last month of some work that's going on here in Jacksonville at UF Health um, Jacksonville, one of the um, academic safety net hospitals here, just to that point in terms of people having no transportation to get to testing sites and how the university took the testing into their neighborhoods and worked with the local housing authorities um, to be able to provide that testing right there in the places where people lived and worked. So very important to look at how all of the social determinants of health play out in this, in in, um, controlling the pandemic, trying to limit the spread of it. Um, But also we see that these social determinants of health really underpin and exacerbate health disparities, right? And one of the things that I've heard you say, and I just love this quote because it's so impactful, is that um, it's racism, not race, that's the culprit. And that gets back to the structural racism. So that really resonates with me, and I think it will um, to our listeners as well. We can, we can say all we want the statistics about how 
for instance, African Americans are more likely to live in poverty or more likely to um, uh, live in uh, closer proximity and in larger family groups. Um, but there are reasons for that. It is not because African Americans necessarily or immigrants are choosing to do this. If we think about just economic policy that goes back to the Jim Crow era, where you couldn't get a mortgage um, and uh, in certain neighborhoods. And those neighborhoods, if you can't get a home reimprovement uh, mortgage to live in that neighborhood, nobody's going to want to move in. Yes. And the houses may not improve as they would in a neighborhood that was. And those were directly based on the racial ethnic uh, ethnicity uh, of the folks that lived in those neighborhoods. And that then leads to a generational wealth challenge. Mm -hmm. um, we know that, um, you know, most African-American families have been um, in the U.S. for a long time. But if you compare wealth of a generation for Black families, it's about 5 to 10 percent, 5 to 10 cents on every dollar of a white family. Mm -hmm. So, and then there's increasing understanding, although not yet how we will mitigate it, but we know that individuals who have experienced discrimination as young people have higher risk factors for heart disease and other, mm -hmm. um, and other problems. It may be that the effect of stress and discrimination affects our DNA and our overall risk factors. It can't help but then perhaps make us more vulnerable to COVID-19. So Dr. Hayes, you mentioned um, research just a little uh, while ago, and I know that this is an important uh, part of your work and specifically understanding how gender, race, and ethnicity can inform research and clinical outcomes. You know, the Kaiser News Network recently reported that research shows that people of different races and ethnicities can respond differently to drugs and therapies, much as what you have uh, just said in terms of how different disease states um, manifest and impact in some populations and, and racial groups differently. So we know that Blacks make up about 13% of the U.S. population, but on an average account for only about 5% of clinical trials, participants in clinical trials. And similarly for Hispanics, who make up about 18% of the population, only account for about 1% of participants in clinical trials. So I'm wondering, Dr. Hayes, what this means in terms of the efficacy of clinical trials now underway to discover a COVID-19 vaccine. Could you share a little bit of your thoughts in that regard? So this is almost like deja vu all over again when I reflect back on trying to get women in cardiovascular clinical trials. Mm -hmm. So if we think back in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of um, federal dollars that was spent on cardiovascular research, realizing it was the number one killer. And there were actually most of the trials that our tax dollars paid for actually excluded women altogether. So that was what led to the 80s and 90s realizing, gee, um, those treatments that worked in men, they're not working quite as well or have different outcome or different side effects in women. We better study women. So we mm -hmm. started playing catch up. The other thing that was important is there was an assumption like there is with race and ethnicity that, oh, if we do a study on men, even if we include women, we don't have to analyze the data by sex. It's probably all the same. 
Well, that has also turned out in some important ways to be um, a, a problem. And I think that we can assume that there may be, because there have been several trials that have shown, particularly for heart failure and hypertension, that there may be race, ethnicity differences in the efficacy mm -hmm. and or side effects of the drugs we use as cardiologists. Mm -hmm. So the first step is take the data that we're collecting now, realizing it's imperfect. We don't have enough women and minorities in our clinical trials for COVID or anything else, but let's make sure we are collecting that data. So whoever we have in, we can analyze the data by race, ethnicity, and gender. Mm -hmm. And that's a critical thing to do that is not being done on a regular basis for COVID-19. So that would be the first call to action is that for every COVID test and for every outcome, um, how they respond to the experimental drugs is that we know who the patients are and that we look. Now there may be no difference across race, ethnicity or gender. And we should be able to say that because how powerful if you are a racial minority who doesn't trust the health system very much anyway, for a good reason, and we can talk about that to be able to say, we analyzed this trial and we found that the, uh, the benefits or the harms, but the benefits of this particular intervention were excellent for COVID-19 and they were equal for women, men, blacks, and whites because we looked and we included it. That's just going to get, we as treating clinicians, but also for those who are potentially recipients of the treatment, more confidence. If we're really going to, for those studies that one has to volunteer for, like a vaccine trial, right? So right now we've got a lot of brave people across the world who are rolling up their sleeve for these first vaccine trials, which could have some risk, right? You know, there yeah, could be side effects. It, it, you know, maybe they don't work, but it is possible that there could be some uh, some harm, um, and that could be very scary for somebody who already doesn't trust the healthcare mm -hmm. system. I think we, we need to help people, one, gain trust in the system, and that's by developing relationships and communities before asking them to roll up their arm, right? Yeah. If the first yes. ask is, hey, we want to experiment on you, I can tell you that there will be a huge lack of trust and probably a big no. But yes. if you have been in that community, whether it's an African-American or immigrant community, um, your healthcare organization, um, working with them, understanding their needs, having them guide what are the most important research needs for your population? You know, is it diabetes? Is it heart disease? Is it prostate cancer? What is the most important thing? And then working and developing those relationships when it's time to, say, implement a vaccine trial that group is your first responders because they're yeah. the ones you can already have can have a conversation. That doesn't mean they're automatically rolled up their sleeve, but it does mean that you can have the conversation yeah. it comes from a place of trust. So as you have said so beautifully, attracting a more diverse population to participate in research requires investigators really to be more flexible, more innovative. And importantly, to be representative of the populations they wish to reach and serve. So with this in mind, I think about diversity in the healthcare professions, and particularly among physicians and researchers, right? That's just so critical. So when it comes to diversity and inclusion in the context of developing careers for women and minorities in healthcare, how important, Dr. Hayes, is mentorship? 
And what advice and guidance would you give in that regard? So, you know, mentorship in the sciences, medical and otherwise, is um, is longstanding. But we also know it's it's not just the mentor who helps you do a research project. It mm-hmm. is uh, that kitchen cabinet of mentors that helps you um, navigate a career, navigate a particular problem, or who just is like you and you have shared experiences. And what we know is that women and minorities in healthcare, and particularly as physicians and scientists, are less likely to have any mentor, and they are certainly less likely to have um, mentors who are like them. And they are also less likely to have the informal mentorship that often happens in the, the coffee room, yes. or or because there are few because those happen much more comfortably for the most part overt exclusion, but it is often an overlooking of the needs of those individuals. So one of the ways to solve that is to make sure that there are actually formal mentoring programs. Mm -hmm. Um, If you you know there's a gap in informal mentoring, making sure that you formalize that so there is a team of mentors. And that is one thing that, uh, for instance, our cardiology group has really done in the past few years is every new staff member as a mentoring team and ones for leadership and ones for their science and ones for, so it really, um, and there's accountability for the mentors and the mentees. I think the other thing is if every woman cardiologist, because we're still a minority, wanted a senior woman cardiologist as their mentor, there's not enough of us, right? Mm -hmm. So that leads to the fact that we not only need to train um, white men to mentor um, black uh, and brown uh, Mm -hmm men and women and women and um, make sure that they're comfortable and that they're needed because I've talked to some of my male colleagues and they feel like they're not equipped and mm-hmm. that they don't want, they're not wanted. And I think that when I talk to my female successful cardiologists um, uh, across the nation, nearly all of them say, you know, there was that one guy and he believed in me and he's why I am where I am. And I think telling those stories of both mentorship and sponsorship. So mentorship is that active um, helping people along with their career and advising, whereas sponsorship is talking about that person when they are not in the room and promoting them. And those two things will help a lot in the success of that small pool, particularly of minority clinicians that we have today. Absolutely. So Dr. Hayes, just to follow up on that a bit. So how do we make people who do not raise their hand and say, I want to be a mentor to someone who doesn't look like me, doesn't have the same background experiences that I do? How do we um, engage them in just being open to the opportunity to be a mentor? And then how do we help them to become an effective mentor? I I think that having a, a formalized a bit. So maybe there's a matching and some support and some feedback. So allowing that mentor perhaps to meet with some an, another mentor um, and be mentor themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of cross-cultural mentoring. And when I say cross-cultural mentoring, that might be generational. Um, that might be um, race, ethnicity. It might be truly cultural, like, uh, you know, a native born versus, um, or a very junior person, because I have learned a lot from mm-hmm. some of my mentees um, I um, because their life experience is very different and it has allowed me to be a better mentor to somebody else who might be like them and actually a better leader. So 
if you frame it like that, where it isn't a mentor who is this all-knowing person who's going to help you through your career into what do I have that I might be able to, to bring to the table um, yes. that would make this a really great collaboration and a win-win. Not every mentorship relationship will be that, but I have um, had several in my career where I've, I have been ostensibly the senior person, but have gotten as much or more out of, um, out of it as uh, the more junior person that I was supposedly mentoring. Yeah. Also, and I love what you said about telling the stories and sharing the experiences. Uh, just one person uh, sharing the impact that it had on them to have a, a mentor. Um, the storytelling is so critical. Dr. Hayes, you talked a, a lot about some of the research that you've been involved in. We've talked about some of the um, mentorship activities um, at Mayo. I'd like to just segue a little bit and talk further about some of the issues um, at Mayo Clinic that have promoted health equity. So Dr. Hayes, you have spoken about some of the initiatives at Mayo in terms of the research that you have been involved in throughout your career, um, in terms of some of the mentorship um, initiatives that um, um, you have led at Mayo and have others have participated and helped to um, advance. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit further now about some of the initiatives at Mayo to promote health equity prior to COVID and certainly now um, during the COVID pandemic. Thanks for that opportunity. I think that, um, you know, uh, as uh, as I've shared, um, a lot of my early efforts was trying to get um, more women in research, um, cardiovascular research, because they were very were and are underrepresented in those studies. And if we don't know about them, and I would often say, if you think we don't know enough about women with heart disease. We know even less about African-American, Hispanic women and their experience of heart disease. And we know that African-American uh, women have increased risk. And actually, Hispanic women appear to have lower risk. So learning about why they have lower risk of dying could be helpful and all around. So, yes. they're, they're, you know, both to help the higher risk individuals, but perhaps inform risk lowering things that we could learn from certain populations. An early collaboration through uh, that came through a heart patient and um, the Links Incorporated, which is a national um, uh, nonprofit uh, advocacy and service organization for African-American women, which I know you're familiar with. Yes. Um, but they had a health, uh, have a health and human services facet, which seemed very aligned to the work that we were looking to do for women. And mm -hmm. obviously heart disease um, being the number one killer of African-American women. So I partnered uh, with a, um, a colleague at Emory, um, as well as the National Links Incorporated and some colleagues at Mayo to um, initially put on a health fair in mm -hmm. uh, the South side of Chicago and really learned about the hunger for women um, and particularly African-American women to improve the health of their communities and of mm -hmm. themselves, but saying, you know what? I've never been asked to be part of research. Yes. So I, I have some trust issues, but you know, nobody's even asked so I could say no. Mm -hmm. And so we did a survey um, at uh, a national meeting of the Links Incorporated, and that actually, that survey showed 
that that was that, yes, there were some trust and some knowledge issues that needed to be overcome, but a lot of it was that we needed to help people like me who may not be asking, you know, their clinicians, hey, we're doing a hypertension trial, prevention trial. Let's, we need to make sure that you are invited instead of perhaps assuming that she wouldn't or would have barriers. That um, led to us being able to successfully compete for an NIH grant to further study this with some links chapters in the upper Midwest, which allowed them to develop an educational intervention for black women in the community to better understand their baseline knowledge about research and research participation, and then inform them about why it's important and what are the pros and cons, and then change their attitudes and willingness to sign up for research. Absolutely. That's an important work and a reminder of the value in partnerships. And I'm thinking about some of the initial work that Movement is Life did in South Side of Chicago in terms of our operation change. So I, I think that there might be some opportunities to sort of reach out and to make some new connections uh, with um, the links to Movement is Life and, um, and Mayo. So we'll have to see if we can make that happen. I, I understand this as well that uh, you referenced earlier when we were talking about community and engagement and partnership with the community in terms of um, recruitment for research trials. And I think one of the things that you said that resonated with me reminded me of that uh, quote from St. Francis of, of Assisi, seek first to understand um, and then to be understood. And I, I think that is the essence of the Rochester Healthy Community Partnership. So if you could share a little bit more um, about that, that would be great. So I'm not directly involved, but I'm very proud of um, the work that my colleagues are doing and, and have been participating a bit in COVID-19. So the Rochester Healthy Community Project is um, has been uh, going strong for over a decade and aimed at um, immigrant communities to help them um, access healthcare um, appropriately, um, to know, to deliver healthcare and health messages in a culturally appropriate way. Um, and my colleagues who've been doing that work have developed these longstanding relationships, not just with individuals, but with but community organizations that service those like there's a an organization that actually is kind of that resource center for new immigrants, um, mm -hmm. and, and so we work through them because that's a trusted partner with the community. Yeah. So we work with trusted partners and with trusted organizations. And when COVID nineteen started hitting, um, as in many um, and still going on, but there were some very potentially deadly. Um, misinformation that was going out. Mm -hmm. um, there, there were messages that Somalis couldn't get COVID-19, they were immune. You know, so things like that, that if you're going to think that you're okay and, the, mm -hmm. and you believe that, you're going to continue to congregate and, and otherwise. And so that group through Rochester Healthy Community Project was able to mobilize literally within days educational programs, videos, print materials, um, and other things in the appropriate language given by trusted individuals to help people understand the, you know, the actual facts and to meet the needs of those communities for testing and, um, and everything. And then, you know, my colleague, uh, cardiology colleague, Dr. La Princess Brewer, um, 
has been working for years on developing relationships um, in African-American faith communities in Rochester <laughs> and in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And so she's developed these relationships largely to advance cardiovascular health, looking at prevention and lifestyle and, and has been working with these communities and building those trusting relationships. So when COVID came, um, it was very quick to be able to identify needs. Um, mm -hmm. What are the gaps? Is it hand sanitizer? Is it a, a church um, a disaster relief plan? You know, mm -hmm. how are you going to do this? And being able to um, mobilize. There was a yeah. clinic up in the Twin Cities that many of the congregation members and their community were going to for COVID-19 testing. There weren't enough supplies mm -hmm. and the results were coming back in 10 to 12 days, yes. which meant that they were going to work and in infecting other people. We were able to work very quickly. So those tests were brought down to Mayo um, to give a more rapid turnaround. And had we not had those relationships, it would not have happened. Exactly. And I think we took that same approach and, and model at, from Rochester at experience to Jacksonville, Florida, where uh, we have um, a couple of our physicians, particularly African-American physicians who know the community very well and organized a series over the first few months of the COVID ep epidemic um, listening sessions with uh, community champions, community yeah. navigators uh, that could be sort of like the bridge between AL and the community to get information to help dispel uh, myths that were out there in the community about the virus and about participating in, in research um, and able to provide some educational materials to take back to the community. And similarly, we have um, recently just started here in Jacksonville, Florida, at Mayo, uh, partnering with um, initially 11 churches, African-American churches, Hispanic churches, uh, to do testing on site um, at the church. And again, that rapid turnaround in test results is so critical and important. So it's nice to see that we can take the learning from one community, uh, from a, a Mayo at one site, and diffuse it to a Mayo and a community at another site. So thank you for sharing that work and example with us. And Dr. Hayes, one other initiative that I'd, I'd like to just hear a little bit more about is the recent um, announcement in terms of the financial commitment that Mayo Clinic has made. You know, after the deaths of Brianna Taylor and George Floyd, literally um, an hour and 15 minutes up the road from Rochester, Minnesota and affecting um, so many of, well, the nation and internationally, uh, really discerning what more should and can Mayo do in terms of addressing racism mm -hmm. um, and health equity. Recently announced um, from, our, and it comes from leadership and our board, a 10-year commitment of $100 million with the goal of uh, eliminating racism at Mayo Clinic. And you can be a cynic and say, we'd never achieve that. And that may be true. But if you set that lofty goal, at least, um, you know, our, our top leaders are really committed and are having the kinds of conversations are so important to have. 
and looking at where Mayo maybe hasn't been at its best, whether as an employer or in um, health equity. And so we're, we're currently in kind of, this was just announced um, within the past couple of weeks. Uh, we're currently on a, on a um, discernment and learning opportunity. So we're really looking for our staff to go all in. In fact, we've got it, it's called Everybody In. Mm-hmm. Um, with opportunities to learn, to commit personally, um, to uh, so in addition to the big organizational commitment, what we're really doing is asking our staff, and particularly our staff who are not minorities and maybe have not experienced racism, to become anti-racist, to mm-hmm. understand what racism is, to understand its impact on our people and our patients and our nation, and to to step up. Yeah. And so we're at the very beginning of this journey, and um, I, I, I think that uh, it has started conversations within our walls that weren't being had before. Yeah, I think there are people who previously have felt like, why should I share my experience? Because it won't make a difference anyway. Um, people are sharing their experience um, and being heard. Yeah. So I'm optimistic. I am not a Pollyanna. This is a a 400-year-old national um, devastating problem that will not go away overnight, but but a commitment like that is not to be taken lightly. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that with us, Dr. Uh, Hayes. We'll look forward to uh, hearing what are those lessons learned. Um, I have participated in some of the um, earlier listening sessions here. And um, what really had stood out in my mind um, is the experiences that our staff um, across the board have outside of work. And they then have to, they have, that's, who, that, that's part of their experience, their, their daily activities of living, if you will. And then they have to set that all aside when they come into the work environment and are expected to perform um, um, on, on an equal footing in the same as our our um, non-Black or non-Hispanic colleagues. And it truly is an additional burden. And I think you talked about it earlier in terms of the uh, impact of um, of racism on our health, on our mental uh, well-being, on our DNA, <laughs> if you will. So I think that this is a tremendous opportunity of learning and understanding and uh, being a force for change. So as we wrap up here, Dr. Hayes, I, I just want to end, um, you mentioned it earlier in terms of a call to action. Each of us we know can make a difference and can make a contribution, whether we're acting individually or leading within our respective organizations to achieve health equity, to speak out against social injustice and racism. So what might you suggest, we suggest as a call to action for physicians, researchers, and healthcare organizations. I'll start with the individual. I sort of started this with talking about my my little middle school um, activism. And I think particularly, and I've heard many physicians feel like uh, that they don't have a voice or they don't have power. They say, why Mm -hmm. should I tell a patient to stop smoking? They, you know, but because they keep coming back and keep starting smoking again. When in fact, the most important marker of somebody quitting smoking is actually a physician telling them to do it. So, so I think um, particularly physicians finding their voice and their power and realizing even um, that, that they do make a difference. And that is being prepared to be not just a good bystander, but an upstander. 
So looking at learning how to be an anti-racist or to address microaggressions in the workplace, because this is not, you don't have to go out of your workplace. You don't have, you can stay in your office and be able to help other people when you witness, whether it's racism or sexual harassment is to be able to call it out and help your colleagues, both the victims, as well as those who maybe have been the perpetrator to perhaps change their behavior. Yes. So I would just say, start by what can I do today to learn about something, to understand what a microaggression is, for instance, to understand, mm-hmm. better understand the experience of my black colleagues um, uh, or my black patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, that will help me with empathy. So I'll, yeah. I'll start with, that is something that everyone can do and they can do it today. I think the things that you can also consider doing is um, a cross-cultural mentoring. And whether that is um, a, a peer-to-peer mentoring or, or volunteering, you know, and not being afraid when you're a senior white cardiologist and they give you the junior black cardiologist, um, uh, that you, can, you have something to value. And your sponsorship could actually be more important to that individual, for instance, and giving them the inside curriculum of how to be a great doctor that is very unique. Looking outside at what are some of the policies, um, mm-hmm. standing up, um, physicians again, beyond their practice is talking about what, what bill or local uh, ordinance or reimbursement um, or, or voting um, maps, where can you step in to help advance justice? Again, it, you do not have to spend a lot of money or a lot of time, and you do have a vote um, and, and a voice. Yes. Um, the other thing I think that people underestimate, and particularly those in the majority, is we all we all belong to one or more professional societies, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I belong to several cardiology uh, societies, and participate if you are a minority in the women's section or the uh, minority section. Be the majority person who sits there, lends your voice, learns from your colleagues, and actually then advocates and spreads the the message. Um, If there is a National Medical Association, a Black Cardiology Association, like the Association of Black Cardiologists, become a member. I've been a member for years, and I have met people I probably would have only, you know, had a a passing glance at a national meeting um, and been able to collaborate and actually mentor Black physicians through that organization. So there's lots of things that we who are in the majority and may think isn't either isn't relevant or isn't possible that really is and is not a huge amount of effort. Beautifully stated, Dr. Haynes. A lot of there for anyone uh, that wants to step up, lean in, and make a difference. And these are not um, insurmountable opportunities. These are things that each of us um, can do um, individually and collectively, and things that our organization can help to promote, especially in the arena of policy at state and, and national levels. So thank you so very much again for taking the time today to visit with us. Um, you have helped helped us to really zero in on what are really the issues that we're addressing and to really call it what it is. Um, And so often we sort of sugarcoat it and don't say what it is and what everyone knows that it is, but we just don't articulate. So thank you for being that, that voice that's been very clear 
and very motivational and aspirational. We look forward to continuing the conversation in other venues and partnering with you and and any opportunity that presents itself. So thank you so very much again, Dr. Hayes. Well, thank you, Michelle. And what it is, is racism affecting so much of um, particularly COVID-19, but also affects cardiovascular outcomes, which of, of course um, is dear to me. And um, thank you for all of your work with Movements is Life, because I can tell you one of the biggest barriers for active participation in cardiac rehabilitation is joint pain. It's musculoskeletal. Yeah. And, um, and so I think that uh, the partnership is just so important. <laughs>